I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Thanks for listening to the History Today podcast. In this episode, we welcome the historian Charles Freeman, who explains his new research into the origins of the Shroud of Turin. Our History Today, we've been very excited by a remarkable piece of historical detective work, which we're very proud to publish in the November issue. It's by Charles Freeman, distinguished historian of the ancient world and an expert on the cult of relics, who has taken a fresh, in-depth look at the origins of the Shroud of Turin. Now this is, or at least has been so far, one of the great unsolved mysteries of history. So I wonder if Charles, who joins us here in our new offices, what prompted you to this remarkably detailed and, uh, as it turns out, very illuminating investigation? Because there has been uh, a great deal of research already on uh, the Turin Shroud's origins. Well, at first I neglected the Shroud of Turin in my book on medieval relics because it was never an important medieval relic. It was one of the many hundreds, perhaps even thousands of cults that came and fell. But it was only when I was researching for a tour I was going to take in Turin, basically looking at the Baroque architecture of the 17th, 18th century, that I found an engraving showing the shroud in a wonderful panorama of an exposition of probably of 1613, in which massed crowds, uh, fusillades of gunfire, and every kind of drama this was associated with the unfurling of the shroud. And when you actually looked at the shroud, and it was an engraving by a very well-known engraver of his day, Antonio Tempesta, known for a meticulous work in other, uh, in other subjects that he'd, that he'd painted and engraved, I could see that there were all kinds of features on the images on the shroud, which today have vanished. Immediately, this r- made me think we're not looking today at a shroud which was as it was. And if you look at the mass of research that has been done by the so-called shrouders, and they're quite happy to be called that, most of them seem to assume that what you look at now in Turin, in the exposition coming up next year in 2015, is the, the shroud as it originally was. And they have tied themselves up into knots, trying to work out how possibly this image could have been created. But in fact, if you take as an assumption that this was a painted linen cloth from which the images have faded over centuries, suppose, and we, we can go further into this, that it was made in the, created and painted in the 14th century, it seems most probable, 
it over the centuries inevitably particularly with a large number of expositions in the 17th century it was bound to decay and the images was bound to decay as it was fold, folded unfolded fold, thrown thrown into all kinds of different uh, expositions over over the centuries and once that basic assumption had been made then a lot followed first of all you could actually look at the original features now, although Tempesta's engraving is probably one of the most accurate, we do have at least 50 more. It's a very rich subject, which has hardly been looked at at all. Because when you came to an exposition, you often could buy a little souvenir, a printed picture of the clergy of the day, sometimes the Dukes of Savoy, who owned the shrine in Turin, holding it in front of an audience. And you could therefore see from different artists at different times, how they actually showed uh, the shroud. And you could put together the features which are now lost, and one of them was the crown of thorns, which you can't see today. The other is in all the depictions since 1578, you find a loincloth, which has now disappeared. Some of them show thumbs on the figures, which are now no longer there. The other issue that comes up is when we look at the descriptions which survive of the shroud, everybody concentrates on the violence of the blood stains. These are still there on the shroud, you can still see them, but they are very faded and the, the descriptions we have from the 15th and 16th centuries is that these were very vivid and really quite shocking in their realism. Now immediately this begins to cause echoes of the blood cults the blood cults of Christ, which were very prominent in the 13th and 14th centuries. If you go back to the 12th century, look at the imagery of the burial of Christ, you find there's virtually no sign of the wounds, occasionally a little sign of bleeding. By the 14th century, you have great emphasis on the flowing blood. Sometimes Christ is on the cross, the blood is flowing from his hands and angels are collecting it. The wound on the side that John mentions in his gospel flows with blood. The blood sometimes runs down the arms. And the closer you look at the blood stains on the shroud, the more you realize that actually these are very typical of the blood stains shown in the iconography of the burial of Christ in the 14th century. And, and indeed, you draw comparisons yeah. with other works of that time. As well. Yes, there's some very good comparisons. The one I have used is the Holcomb Bible. It's not really a Bible. It's a series of manuscript uh, and uh, depictions of scenes from the Passion uh, of about 1330. It's now in the British Library in London. It's called the Holcomb Bible because it originally came from Holcomb Hall in the library there in, in Norfolk. It shows the crown of thorns in place on Christ's face and, and his head, and it shows the blood stains running down his hair and across his brow. Very similar to what we actually see on the shroud even today. Mm, strikingly so. Uh, strikingly so. I, 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 in one point, say it's almost like a template. It's mm. almost like mm. the artist who painted the shroud. And we need to come on to the question of the paint in a minute but that the artist who painted the shrine was almost copying a template. And again, what actually clinches this further is that the blood flowing down the arms, which is very typical of the 14th century, is also seen on the arms of the, uh, of the man on the shrine. So that is fascinating itself. But what actually clinched it was something 
which uh, was rather, rather more intriguing, and that is that the marks of the flagellation of Christ, the scourging of Christ, which of course is recorded in the gospel, on the shroud cover the whole body, crisscross marks cover the whole body. And even today, you can dimly see these on the shroud. Now, we have no evidence at all from earlier than 1290s, about the earliest I found. Other uh, scholars have suggested 1300 of um, an all over flagellation like this. It just doesn't seem to exist in the iconography. And what actually caused, what was quite a dramatic change in the way that the flagellation was represented seems to have been the attempt to search through the Old Testament to find premonitions, as you might say, of what Christ would suffer in his passion. And the particular verse that stood out was Isaiah chapter one, verse six, where it talks of someone who is beaten from the crown of his head to the tips of his toes. And it seems that this was the uh, catalyst for actually creating in art the idea of Christ having been flagellated all over. And as I say, we've got no examples earlier than about 1290 or 1300. So we're coming closer, not only through the bloodstains, but also the marks of the flagellation to really a 14th century image. Uh, now, how could we sort of build on that? Well, the first question is, uh, if you, you the iconography seems pretty clear that this is a 14th century image. We have the first documentary evidence is of the shroud in a chapel at Leary in northern France near Troy, where it was exhibited in the 1350s by Jeanne de Chanet, who was the wife of a very prominent French knight, Geoffrey de Chanet, who was fighting with the King of France and was doing a lot of diplomatic missions for him in the 1350s and was going to die in Poitiers in 1356 in the wars against the English, the famous Hundred Years' War. She seems to have been on her own, as far as we can ascertain, in this chapel. And it's probably she and the clergy who decided to put up this painted cloth as a real relic, the real burial shroud of Christ. Very quickly stamped on by the local bishop. This was, these were the traumatic years after the Black Death. Everybody was highly distressed and distraught. And many of these cults suddenly sprung up as people were looking for uh, some kind of sal spiritual salvation in the drama following the enormous drop in population of the Black Death. But the bishop shuts it up, and if for 30 years we don't hear about the Shroud, and then it re-emerges. Geoffrey uh, de Charny's son is, starts exhibiting again in 1390. But something dramatic has happened that the antipope, uh, Clement VII, the antipope, as he's not accepted in the legitimate lines of popes at a time when there were competing popes, accepts uh, that this can be shown, it can be exposed, but it has to be said that every exposition, this cannot be, this is not the real burial cloth. Now, this is a really important point because it shows that the church did not think it was a forgery. It doesn't think that anybody had been trying to deceive anybody. But what clearly has happened is something has given the shroud spiritual status and the most likely thing is, because we have many hundreds of other examples, is that some kind of miracle was associated mm -hmm. with it. It may have been, for instance, that in the 1350s, that although it, wasn't, uh, it was never, in fact, the burial cloth or, belie or believed by the church to be, that in fact somebody, some pilgrim who visited, recorded a miracle. 
uh, and for some reason this stuck, and uh, this was what gave the shroud a spiritual status, which allowed it to be uh, venerated, and, and as it still is today, and that mm -hmm. is the situation that Pope Francis has reiterated. This but, is but we should make it clear that there's absolutely no way in which the church claims or has claimed that this is the actual uh, burial shroud of Christ. This is a little con difficult to know because some of the popes, like Julius II, seem to have tended towards it. And in fact, he gave a feast day for the shrine, which is May the 4th. Uh, but in 1670, when the Dukes of Savoy were exhibiting the shrine virtually every year, as far as we can see, the, uh, there was still a papal statement that this was not the real thing, but you could still get an indulgence for visiting it because it reminded uh, pilgrims of the passion mm -hmm. of what yeah. Christ had gone through. So uh, that seems to be the state. So when people say, if it's not authentic, it must be a forgery, mm -hmm. that's not true at all. Because it, first of all, and I think this is an important point to make, uh, no one in the Middle Ages, no forger in the Middle Ages, making the burial cloth of Christ to deceive people would ever have made a cloth like this. For a start, what do we know? They, they would only have had the uh, Vulgate Latins for translations, of course, for natural translations of the Bible, and it would have talked of Orthonia in the Greek or Lintiamani Mina in the Latin of wrappings of Christ, the Baal Shrine of some kind of wrappings with a separate faith cloth, as John's Gospel makes quite clearly. Now, any faker would never get away with a large cloth with two images on it. Because if, for instance, John's Gospel had said that uh, Peter went into the tomb and he saw a cloth lying there with an image of uh, the risen Christ on it, uh, then, of course, the forger would have to put one on. But if there is no mention, no one's going to be taken in. So I think we can rule out very easily that this is a, a forgery. Uh, this was created for some other purpose. And what is fascinating is to see what were the possible other purposes in which this painted cloth uh, could have been created by an artist. And of course you come to this in the second part of I your come article. To, I come in the second part. It took a lot of searching around. The first thing that's uh, important to note is that linen, painted linen hangings in churches of various sorts are very, very common. If you go back to the cathedral and church inventories, you often find some of them have hundreds of hangings. Some of these were basic hangings. They just were, were put up at different places in the church. Uh, for instance, in my near where I live, Barry St. Edmunds, in the inventory of the great abbey there, has a records of a lot of hangings in the great cathedral church, great abbey church, not cathedral, great abbey church of um, where St. Edmund was uh, supposed to have been buried. But very common, of course, were the Lenten veils, because in Lent, any kind of statue, any kind of opulence in the church had to be hidden up with cloth. And when I first started working on it, I thought this was a cloth that was used to cover an altar, because there are several of these. And we, um, we have the Parmon of Narbonne, for instance, which is a very rare silk survival, painted silk, which does seem to have been created specifically at Lent to hang up behind an altar. But... This didn't really work, and it was almost by chance that I was looking at some of the medieval liturgies that I came across the uh, ceremony of Quem Coritis. Now, Quem Coritis is an Easter ceremony. I don't know if anyone uh, in, in, the, in the church still, still follows it, but it's a, a fascinating ceremony because on Easter Sunday, they used to try and recreate within the churches and 
many of the examples we have are from monastic records of the the, the coming to the tomb, either the three Marys or Peter and the, gospel, the disciple that Jesus loved. Many people think it's John. Mm -hmm. uh, it depended. You could pick and choose among your gospel scenes, um, but you would recreate it. And what they would do in the church was they would set up a tomb, sometimes very makeshift. It just seems to be in a sort of wooden structure with hangings on it. Other cases, and there's a nice example in Aquilea in northern Italy, they actually made a stone tomb from year to year. It was, a it was an actual recreation of the sepulchre at, uh, in Jerusalem. And they would place, one of the priests would sit by it, pretending to be, acting out the angel who is mm -hmm. at the tomb when the, when the three Marys or Peter and John arrive or and he says, whom are you seeking? Quem caritas? Quem quem whom are you seeking? And they say, we're looking for Christ. We're looking for Jesus who was buried here. And he said, that he is risen. And basically the liturgy, which went on chanting backwards and forwards, basically said, if you don't believe me, go into the tomb. You will find it empty and the grave cloth are lying there. And they go in and they bring out a grave cloth and they hold it up in extenso, as some of the records say, uh, in front of the congregation. And then there is a procession in front of the congregation and it is laid on the altar. Now, we don't know immediately what uh, these uh, cloth consisted of because probably, and this is what is the really exciting part for me, is that the shroud may be the only one that, it, that has survived. Mm -hmm. they, linen decays very easily, damp, far, all kinds of problems uh, associated with, with, with linen preserved over many generations could have assailed it. But we do discover that in, in there the, are the cases in Spain, for instance, some of the rites where it specifically says that the, there were, the body of Christ was painted on the linen. And so we do know this, that this, this happened. Um, but what clinched it for me was going back to the pilgrim badge from Leary, which amazingly was found in the Seine in 1855, and it's now in the Musée de Cluny in, in Paris, in the medieval museum there. And it shows two clergymen, or in fact, they are you can hardly see they're, they're, they're damaged, and you can only see their, their, their vestments holding up the shroud, we know it is a shroud because it has the arms of Jeanne de Charny underneath it and her husband Geoffrey. And between the arms, there is an empty tomb. And this is exactly as the uh, ritual and the liturgy of holding up the grave cloth is described in the monastic and other records. So I think this, I, I'm going to be a little cautious, but I think this is the best single explanation of the shrine. So what we actually have is what was created and painted, and I want to come back to the paint because I think it's important, painted as, a, as a, a, a stage prop, if you like, for one of these ceremonies. Uh, and then at some point uh, it was used, it may have had miracles associated with it early on, because we have another example, which is now almost said it destroyed in the French Revolution. It no longer exists. We think it was destroyed in the French Revolution from Bessonson, which is a single figure, uh, very similar to the Shroud, but much earlier in the sense there's no blood stains. But it's a figure lying as the man on the Shroud is with 
with his hands over his pelvic area. It's uh, much cruder. Yeah, it's a cruder. Yeah. And I think a lot of these grave cloths were basically created on the spot mm. by a local artist who, uh, you know, who knew what he was supposed to do, but wasn't able to do it very well. <laughs> and and I, I, mm. I think this is maybe that the, the Shride is probably more sophisticated than that. Yeah. But that we do, there is a record that that was associated with somebody being risen from the dead, they either touched it or whatever. So we, 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 we've got that possibility. And at some point, completely unknown, it arrived in Newry, in the, in the, in the church there. Um, I have, and I need some real expert help on this, but I have suspicions that the most likely provenance is southern Germany, because we do have the blood cults were very powerful there, and we do also have um, examples of what are called the holy graves in, in along the Rhine, which are figures very similar to the figure on the uh, on, on the shroud. And so iconographically, one might be able to link uh, the shroud's figures. And I do really, we really need to get some experts that, to work on this uh, to see whether we can pinpoint um, a southern German origin uh, for the shroud. We may never be able to pin it down, but that seems to me the most likely possibility. But uh, since I wrote the article, there's one... One avenue which is, looks like it needs further exploration, and that is, I was reading an article uh, that was written about copies of the Shroud. Now, it wasn't illustrated, so it was very difficult to know what they meant by copies of the Shroud. But a lot of uh, so-called copies of the Shroud were, are to be found in Spanish churches. But the descriptions given in the article shows, suggests that some of these may not have been copies of the Shroud at all. Uh, you can usually pinpoint the copies of the Shroud because the fire marks, which came from a fire in 1532, are shown in the genuine copies. Right. Uh, you can't really do a copy of the Shroud today without the very prominent fire marks, mm -hmm. which are still there and are on all the images. So when you see uh, a double image without fire marks, it's possible that this actually could have been another grave cloth. So we need a Spanish expert who's prepared to go around, dig around in the archives and look at some of these copies to see whether we can trace any of those back uh, earlier than the Shroud. And it may even be that we do find, track down some other cases. In, at, at the moment, it looks like there may be one or two in Spain. But at the moment, let's uh, cling to the fact that we've got the only one. <laughs> and, and as such, I think it's important because for, for a number of two reasons, number of reasons. I mean, one reason is that it, it's a possible solution. I'm not going to go further than that. The possible solution to the so-called great mystery of the shrine. Uh, I personally think that these, uh, this mystery has been overplayed because of so much of the basic work on the iconography of the uh, early descriptions and depictions has never been done properly. So that I think to call it a mystery when, when you haven't really done the kind of research that uh, you'd have thought was the the primary research, the search you begin with before you started uh, calling something a mystery. But it's important, possibly as a solution, it's important in, in the history of drama because here was the beginnings of medieval European drama because you can trace almost a direct line. People like Carl Jung in the 1930s were working on this, although they didn't mention the Shroud at all direct line from these Easter ceremonies within the church, where it seems that even the priest didn't even, even put on any costume. They just, everybody sort of knew what part they were playing out into the passion plays of the medieval streets that we all know about. So in that sense, in the history of drama, I think the shrine 
has uh, in, enormous importance um, if, 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 if this is indeed uh, one of these grave cloths. It's the only stage prop of the birth of European medieval drama, mm -hmm. which of course then feeds into Renaissance and later drama. But also, and I think there's another important reason, the church has never pronounced an authenticity. And it, after all, it was the church which commissioned the radiocarbon dating which came up with very much the same date as my iconography. I don't play a big part, I don't give a big part to the radiocarbon dating because I wanted to see whether you could actually prove the case on the iconography alone. Mm -hmm. And I think that's established, even if the radiocarbon dating had not taken place. I hope that I've established uh, first half of the 14th century, possibly 1325 to 50 as the possible date. But we do have a radiocarbon dating, uh, which says 95% certain, 1260 to 1390, uh, which fits, of course, yeah. absolutely perfectly. But the church commissioned that. The church accepted it. It has never officially uh, said that it does no, not believe that that is a, was a fair, uh, fair assessment of its age. But what we have created for for the church is a spiritual significance for the for the shrine. If we said, as many people do without thinking, if it's not authentic, if it's 1330, it therefore is a fake and a forgery, well then it leaves the church in a bit of a mess. But if you're actually saying, as I think is, is correct to say, no, this is not a fake, it was never intended to be a fake. It was actually had a spiritual purpose, it had a function of, of being part of the great celebration of Easter. And as such, it is fixed right within the medieval uh, spiritual ethos uh, in a way that no fake or forgery would, ever, of course, ever get near. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that the church can see this as, a, uh, from their point of view, as a, an acceptable solution, uh, because it, of course, does nothing to under, uh, undermine the veneration in which the shrine has been held now for over 600 years and will continue to be venerated in the great exposition they're planning mm. for 2015. Excellent. Well, thank you, Charles. Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's a fascinating article, I have mm. to say. Um, and I think a convincing one, mm. as I you say, although, would... although obviously there is some more work to be done. Yeah, there's say, a lot but, more work um, to be done, yeah. Uh, but we're, we're extremely proud uh, to be publishing it and congratulations on... Uh, on what you've done. It's available in the November edition of, mm. of the magazine, uh, mm. on the digital edition, mm. and on the website too. Um, mm, so right. I hope everyone enjoys it. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.